0: everyone and welcome to the tinnitus talk podcast. I'm here today with Brian Pollard and I'm especially happy to have him on because many of you guys out there have been asking us for quite some time when are you gonna do an episode on hyperacusis. Obviously a lot of people with tinnitus also suffer from hyperacusis and vice versa There's a lot of overlap, uh, so it's an important issue to many, and and many feel it's even more under-recognized and under-researched than tinnitus, so I'm happy we get to pay some attention to it today, and welcome to the podcast, Brian. Thank you. So, Brian, can you tell us a bit about yourself and uh, obviously, you're, you're doing a lot of work in the area of hyperacusis, uh, and I think it came about because you yourself developed hyperacusis. So, can you just tell us your, your background story?
1: Sure. Well, I am a- excited to be able to um, share a lot of information today. My own background started a little over a decade ago. Um, from, uh, ironically, a situation where I was trying to make things safer at my house. So I had a tree growing partially over the house that was unsafe. I was concerned about it might uh, come down on the house during a storm. So I had it cut down. It was quite large. And um, I was at home from work to watch the procedure because it was actually a little bit of risk to part of it uh, hitting the house in the cut-down procedure. And so um, after staying outside while they were using chainsaws to cut it down, I was quite relieved that it was down safely. And I thought the most dangerous part of the work was done and I was just inside eating lunch. And I had assumed they would start uh, cutting up the large chunks of the tree to put on a truck, but that was not the procedure they chose to do. They actually brought in this huge industrial size wood chipper and began chipping up the entire tree, including the large chunks. It was incredibly loud. I remember thinking, I don't think I've ever heard anything that loud in my life. And uh, I stood at the window watching it a few minutes and then proceeded to eat. And then when I left, I walked right by the wood chipper. Little did I know that um, there was significant damage that had already occurred. And I had some delay, but um, several uh, days later, I began experiencing a lot of various symptoms, including uh, ear pain and kind of the normal path for hi- hyperacusis sufferers.
0: Wow. And so, how, how did things develop from there?
1: Well, like a lot of people, you know, I proceeded to the normal uh, clinical community uh, at the ENT. Um, there was uh, quite a bit of normal procedural steps followed for testing hearing damage. There was no detectable damage by the normal auditory examinations. And so eventually I got around to several uh, audiologists. Uh, basically, you know, they were just ruling out the standard things. Uh, none of them even mentioned hyperacusis. In fact, hyperacusis didn't come up until I started doing my own internet searches. And eventually, I found that um, that seemed to describe what I was experiencing much better than anything that had been suggested. Eventually, I found um, someone quite a distance away, about 45 miles away, that did the standard TRT treatment for hyperacuses. And I proceeded to go through that process um, about a year and a half with the, the standard protocol. Very, very little progress uh, during that time, but I actually did continue standard TRT for over five years. Uh, Throughout the whole time, I did not get uh, significant gains, but just some modest uh, improvements.
0: Wow. I'd like to hear more later about your experience with with treatments, various treatments, but what were you at the time experiencing in terms of symptoms? Can you describe what it's like for someone who doesn't have it.
1: Sure. Um, my symptoms turned out to be fairly typical, although at the time I, I did not know that um, because it's, you know, a discovery from the mystery of, of what one is experiencing. Basically, when I was around what used to be normal uh, sounds, but, you know, somewhat louder sounds, my ear would start throbbing. And confusingly, it wouldn't always throb right away. In fact, sometimes I would think that, oh, that situation didn't really bother me. But when I would lay down at night, my ear would start throbbing. And eventually, I began to correlate the loudness of exposures. In fact, fairly early on, I bought a decibel meter because uh, the smartphone apps weren't readily available as much at the time. And I started denoting the decibel levels that of what I was exposing myself to, to try to understand if there was some correlation between the levels of throbbing and pain I would experience and uh, what had occurred. Uh, eventually, I did see some correlation, although nowhere close to one-to-one correlation. Uh, but additionally, there were symptoms like air fullness, uh, tinnitus, which mine is uh, reactive. So that would also spike in relationship to the noise levels I was around.
0: Mm-hmm. How did you go from being someone struggling with hyperacusis to becoming sort of an an advocate in this space? Because you actually do quite a lot for, for other people with hyperacusis. Can you tell us a bit about your work in that regard?
1: Well, my involvement was somewhat natural um, because I was uh, an engineer at a highly uh, tech-oriented company where my role had developed into one of solving technical problems. I had uh, studied uh, a number of innovative problem-solving methodologies, including some that had uh, some significant online tools to things like a patent database. And so, I started looking at this problem like I was examining more technical problems at work, which, you know, was not in a biomedical field. Um, But what became evident to me was there was no systematic assessment of the nature of what patients were experiencing in the research community. And eventually, after studying some of the basic uh, papers on hyperacusis at the time, which was pretty thin, especially from an in-depth technical perspective, I started emailing researchers directly and just reaching out to them. And amazingly, many of them responded. Um, I actually didn't reach out saying I'm a patient. I reached out on the basis of saying, I'm trying to understand this aspect of your research. And... After getting a number of responses, eventually I got connected to Dr. David Mountain at Boston University. And uh, he's a renowned uh, researcher, Uh, now he's passed, but uh, he also had an electrical engineering background which happened to be my background. And so uh, living close by, I was able to go to his office. And while he had never studied the condition directly, he knew much uh, in-depth work associated with basic auditory functions. And he was fascinated by this condition and what I described to him, he had never heard anything like it. And he became a strong partner and advocate and really gave us the basis to uh, begin the work. Eventually it became clear if I wanted to significantly influence the research, we needed to form that work into some more formal uh, method, which a nonprofit became the obvious choice. To try to get a coalition of forces that could actually start to impact what was being researched.
0: So that became hypercusis research, correct?
1: Yes. And, and that's where there was no debate on the name <laughs> because, mm-hmm. um, you know, I looked at the early days as something, um, if you, you take uh, foundations, for example, and, at large for various uh, medical conditions. Most often, they're very large umbrella organizations, meaning they're trying to cover every single dimension of the patient side, the clinical side, the research side, and have a really broad basis. Knowing that we were so small and had just a band of volunteers, we intentionally focused all of our work in the early days solely on the research dimension, because that's the part we really wanted to directly impact.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the what does the organization look like today? I think it's it's still uh, run by by volunteers, but uh, have you sort of evolved, expanded over time in any way?
1: Yes, so we did find a couple of avenues that were able to take us into a pattern of being able to multiply what we were doing from a small basis. So uh, yes, it's still all volunteer, but the the number of volunteers has increased. Uh, We do have uh, members focused on various dimensions of what we attempt to accomplish, and we have some very technically focused um, people helping, some very media-focused people, and then some strong leaders on the board who've experienced a lot of different phenomenon in their uh, careers, uh, along with people who also have members of the family who have hyperacuses. And so, what really became our platform of greater influence was our partnership with the Hearing Health Foundation, which was enabled by a connected physician in New York City who had hyperacusis and was able to get us uh, direct connections uh, with the Hearing Health Foundation. They were started in 1958, one of the largest organizations in the United States focused on auditory disorders. And that really began to give us a platform to enable the research dollars we were obtaining to go to a much larger audience. And that's where eventually our partnership for our funding to go to their emerging research grant program has been kind of the foundation of what's uh, grown into something that now has, um, you know, to some degree name recognition in the research community.
0: Mm, yeah. Yeah, we're quite familiar with Hearing Health Foundation. I think they do some great work. Um we actually published an article in their magazine a few months ago. When I say we, I mean Tinnitus Hubs, so the organization behind this podcast. And we um we've collected quite a lot of survey data over the years and uh we published an article about age and tinnitus in one of their magazines. So, um, yeah, we, we have some some connections with them ourselves. Right. And they seem to be lo- doing a lot of great work. So, <laughs> I think we should move on and talk a bit about what hyperacusis actually is and what the, what the different types of hyperacusis are. Do you have a kind of basic definition of, of hyperacusis that you like to work with? Yes,
1: I do. My definition is pretty simple at the base level. Uh, I define it this way. Hyperacusis is a condition that causes a person to be unable to tolerate everyday noise levels without discomfort or pain. That's a fairly limited statement uh, compared to some But one of the reasons for trying to uh, keep the definition um, fairly concise is because there are a lot of variations associated with everything that was just said. And um, most interesting in the history of the definition of hyperacusis is how the word pain has been either in or mostly out of that definition what happened in the early days, um, which the term itself has been around since the 1930s. In the early days of the definition, the emphasis on the pain component was fairly big. Uh, somewhere along the way, it fell out and the sole emphasis became the issue of loudness. And then one of the things we tried to do is what I initially thought we were the the first to kind of emphasize the pain component until I was doing more in-depth research in the last year or so. and And I actually uncovered that what we were actually doing was recovering that emphasis because it had been there in the early history of the definition
0: right. so i've I've heard people talk about pain hypercusis versus loudness hypercusis. Uh, where the former means you literally experience pain with certain sounds, and the latter means that sounds are somehow amplified somewhere along the auditory pathway, I suppose. Uh, are, are those, is that there really such a distinction? Are those two different types?
1: Well, this is a, a great discussion, and it is one that I've spent uh, quite a bit of time on. Um, one of the core references in the field today stems from the 2014 literature review that Rich Tyler led a team to accomplish, which we actually helped to sponsor the, the grant for that literature review. And ultimately, he came to the conclusion of the four basic subtypes, loudness, pain, annoyance, and fear. And my description of that is I think what's helpful about that categorization is there is a, a distinguishing... Uh, factor between what I call two physically based components and two emotionally based components of hyperacuses, meaning the loudness or pain as two very distinct physical symptoms, and the annoyance or fear as two distinct uh, what could be termed emotional components uh, associated with the physical uh, symptoms that are felt, and so. Those are not what I call perfect, meaning you could probably come up with a few other ways to um, parse that out. But I think what's super helpful is really distinguishing whether a patient's main complaint or primary complaint is loudness or pain. And uh, initially, uh, everybody was approaching hyperacuses as of a decade ago where the primary complaint was loudness. And like I referred to earlier, pain was barely in the picture. I think the reason why this is helpful is it allows clinicians to try to delineate what is the primary complaint of the patient and not assuming that because, you know, they talk about sounds seeming louder that that is the main problem. Now, where are these Terms may be problematic, and what that review states even itself is that these are interrelated and commingled among the same patient. Um, I don't personally know of a whole lot of people who have only pain hyperacusis and no perception of greater loudness at all. However, I do know quite a number of people who have only loudness concerns associated with their hyperacusis, and virtually no pain whatsoever. And so, I think, for the most part, these symptoms do tend to go into a spectrum of variability between patients, and what they really help with is the clinician trying to focus on what is the main uh, component of of the symptoms that this patient has that we need to address.
0: Right. It it makes... Intuitive sense that it's something like a spectrum, but but is it known whether sort of you know in terms of the underlying mechanisms physiologically in the ear and in the brain whether the the, there really are distinct types of hyperacusis um, in that sense.
1: I think that the nature of what we know about the distinguishing factors and mechanisms between these various types is still somewhat weak. Uh, there is a, a great model for loudness hyperacuses. It's one that's readily accepted, and I think it explains a lot of factors, and, and that is mostly the central gain model associated with loudness hyperacusis. Um, it's fairly well proven that you can both in animal models and in some human testing induced scenarios by which there is a louder precept. And therefore, uh, I think there probably is something that's very different associated with a patient who experiences regular pain. And it's probably in addition to that core element affecting someone who only has loudness, hyperacusis. And so, from that sense, um, my opinion at at the moment with the research we have to date is that what we're uncovering is essentially there are different elements of the auditory system impacted in those who are experiencing hyperacuses. Probably most of those people also have similar impact as those who only have loudness hyperacuses. They just have these additional elements as well.
0: Okay. That makes sense. So. You said there's a fairly well-established model for how uh, loudness hyperacusis works. Uh, Are there any solid working theories on where the pain aspect comes from?
1: The pain associated with hyperacusis has several different uh, possible plausible theories at this point. And we can get into some more depth on each of these paths in some follow-up questions, but broadly speaking, without getting into a lot of details at the moment, there is the general pathway that's been uncovered with what's termed auditory nociception that has been found to describe what is happening with the type two nerve fibers in the inner ear. Uh, Paul Fuchs and a number of researchers including Jaime Garcia andervos at Northwestern have shown that these type two fibers that previously were really unclear of their function overall are um, most probably fibers that are only sending pain signals to the brain. Therefore, that was an incredible breakthrough uh, over recent years compared to all of the history of auditory research, where forever researchers had assumed that the cochlea itself, not meaning items surrounding the cochlea, but the cochlea itself had no nociceptive fibers like the brain. And so, as you might know, the brain itself does not feel pain. It sends signals associated with pain, but it does not have the sensory components to actually signal pain the cochlea was thought to be like that. And therefore, uh, for many years, my discussions with researchers on this topic, they referred to that as it were a fact. They said, well, the cochlea can't feel pain, so it has to be some type of associated pain signal. Now that this whole pathway of research associated with the type 2 nerve fibers has been determined, then there's a whole new uh, door that's open associated. Then if that is, in fact, the mechanism for some hyperacusis sufferers, what is enabling those fibers to start firing at noise levels different than it would take for them to fire at, for an, a person who's healthy? And that's where that pathway of research is currently at. The other side of research that also is gaining a lot of momentum is uh, sensory mechanisms associated with inflammatory responses for the middle ear. And this is equally gaining steam as a potential key player for some sufferers as a source of pain, and there's quite a bit of growing evidence to indicate that for some people, this may very likely be where the pain me- mechanism lies.
0: Interesting. So it sounds like there's been several breakthroughs, actually, in recent years to the point where we now know that different parts of the ear can you know, have pain receptors. So I guess then the question is why they're more easily triggered for some people than for others. Um, but it, But it makes sense as well when you think about it that because i think anyone experiencing a loud enough sound feels pain in their ear
1: well that very question itself baffled researchers for years this was the question i first brought to dr mountain in 2011 i said can you explain to me what the threshold of pain is for a healthy person and why it is happening and he could not hmm. And he admitted that the field did not actually know exactly why there was a threshold of pain for healthy people. Um, So that's been a core basis. In fact, I termed, uh, coined the term noise-induced pain from the classic term noise-induced hearing loss to help the entire field understand this is what we're attempting to uncover.
0: Wow. So yeah, it sounds like you've really driven research forward in a, in a good direction in that sense. So I want to, um, we'll get back more to research later, but just a final question on definitions. Um, you mentioned briefly as well that you uh, experience reactive tinnitus. So, and we know a lot of people with tinnitus talk about this and also people with tinnitus who have not been diagnosed or don't you know define themselves as hyperacusis patients but they will nevertheless talk about how certain sounds trigger their tinnitus make their tinnitus louder temporarily i don't know if this is a formal term or not but people call it reactive tinnitus so would you consider that to be actually a form of hyperacusis?
1: Well, reactive tinnitus is an accepted term among most of the research community. Uh, It's not as strongly accepted by clinicians. Um, So there's an interesting small discrepancy there. Uh, But many do, in fact, accept it, although they may give it uh, slightly different titles. Um, Having attended, you know, many research conferences, I've heard uh, a number of talks that Uh, refer to this, and um, I would personally keep it under the tinnitus category just as a subtype of tinnitus, Uh, and uh, I think it is one that likely follows a similar mechanism as those whose hyperacusis gets worse with loud sounds because they frequently go together, not for everyone, Uh, but uh, for those who do have hyperacusis and have tinnitus, Many find that these cycles of what become um, elevations in their pain associated with loud noises they were recently around, there's also elevations in their tinnitus at the same time. So I would propose that there are likely similar mechanisms that work in both.
0: Okay, um, let's move on to uh, treatment or hypercusis management. So uh, we got a lot of questions about this from, uh, from our listeners, about different types of treatment and what you would advise, um, but maybe you can start with sort of a general overview of what's, what's available today for the average hyperacusis patient.
1: As you know, the uh, summary associated with hyperacusis treatments in general in the clinical community is weaker than for tinnitus. Um, and so I do start the foundational references on what is typically put under the tinnitus umbrella first and kind of go from there. The core reference in the US for clinical practice guidelines for tinnitus was set in 2014 by the American Academy of Otolaryngology. And uh, that was, you know, a full reference document that gave the evaluation of every single major therapy and whether it would be considered as a definitive recommendation uh, or as something clinicians may recommend or not recommend on the basis of their evaluation of uh, clinical information at the time. And so it's interesting there that uh, their ultimate statement about sound therapy was, they said clinicians may recommend it. That is something they considered as an option based on randomized uh, clinical trials that most of them have some concerns and they leave it open to uh, having a balance between benefit and harm. And so with that as my foundation, I, I do personally think the evidence for hyperacusis for sound therapy has an even greater weakness than stated there and that is that um, there is a small amount of true clinical data that is based on, you know, the the full placebo-controlled clinical trial basis. There's not strong evidence to say that it's a a convincing treatment in most hyperacusis cases. What there clearly are, are many uh, more individualized published studies associated with various uh, clinicians that had a practice for uh, either sound therapy more generally or TRT specifically. And there are many types of case studies that show a lot of evidence in the individual cases that there was great value to a certain patient population.
0: Can you clarify what exactly you mean by sound therapy? Are we talking about white noise generators, for instance?
1: That is a a great uh, thing to distinguish because sound therapy uh, can be differentiated from full uh, tinnitus retraining therapy. Sound therapy itself is largely based off of a continuous type of noise. Typically, pink or white noise are the main recommendations. But now there obviously are a lot of variations of that with uh, many different types of frequency spectrums applied.
0: Okay. Uh, and so uh, this is typically part of TRT, so tinnitus retraining therapy, but that also encompasses other elements. Now you mentioned that you have um, undergone TRT treatment for many years. So where do you stand currently on its effectiveness in treating hyperacusis?
1: I think this is where subcategorization of hyperacusis comes into play and can be very important in setting a patient's expectation levels. Again, the the full basis of studies associated with this is, is also not very strong uh, for hyperacusis. There was a study earlier this year by Martin Pinkowski that was titled Rationale and Efficiency of Sound Therapies for Tinnitus and Hyperacusis. In this paper, he concluded that there are too few placebo-controlled trials that help to demonstrate the effectiveness of any sound therapy treatment. And he uh, highlighted that especially for hyperacusis, only a handful of studies, mostly case reports, show true benefit for hyperacusis, broadly speaking. In more specific discussions with clinicians, as well as our own survey data, I have found that uh, for those who have hyperacusis with pain, there is some evidence to indicate that they get much less benefit from either sound therapy broadly or TRT overall than those who have loudness hyperacusis. So at the moment, what uh, I'm sensing is that for those who do only have loudness hyperacuses, there's likelihood of a positive impact from sound therapy and the range of benefit is quite big depending on both severity and maybe the protocol types and, and more the specifics around their, the individual cases. And then with pain hyperacuses, Uh, Earlier this year, in talk on treatment for pain hyperacuses, the spokesperson said that we complete pain hyperacuses completely independently now from loudness hyperacuses, and it requires a much more tailored approach, and also we typically don't expect the same outcomes as we do with loudness hyperacuses.
0: That sounds like a big step forward. but I can imagine it's not something that's fully ingrained in you know, clinicians generally out there in the world. Uh, I, I don't know how many audiologists, for example, would really make this distinction.
1: Sure. I think it's not popular yet, uh, but I think we are getting some momentum to having more people understand this problem of you know, the history where this was not distinguished very well and currently where we are able to get some uh, different types of understanding. One of the things we've emphasized this year is getting more into the clinical community's hands about the data of what we're learning with our survey data, as well as just uh, a lot more uh, bringing in the research side. And so we've had a publication both in the hearing journal and in the ENT and audiology news magazines that uh, are for clinicians. So that's a big aim we have right now, is really helping to get this information into their hands.
0: That's really great, and I'm sure it will help many patients. Um, What's your view on, so from my understanding, a lot of hyperacusis patients are asked to practice some kind of desensitization, right, where they expose themselves to sounds that are just above their comfort level. And the theory is that if you just sort of keep doing that, um, uh, the comfort level will go up. Uh, I can imagine it doesn't maybe work like that for everyone. What's what's your view on that?
1: Well, this topic brings up Uh, Another important element that I think has also not been uh, looked at very deeply in the clinical community, and that is the topic of setbacks. The main challenge associated with increased exposure to louder sounds is control of the situation. And specifically, what we found is that many patients find their most critical element of their progress is to prevent setbacks. And so setback prevention is a high priority that many sufferers have. And what happens the more you uh, allow yourself to be around situations that are gonna have louder sounds is you increase the risk to a major setback. And for many people, a major setback may take many days, weeks, or even months to recover from. And therefore, they don't see that forward momentum and gain because of the setback. And so, unfortunately, we don't have enough evidence yet to really help guide patients on this journey. Most determine this themselves. They kind of figure out that magical threshold for themselves, and they're able to make progress without lots of setbacks. And so, um, I think, unfortunately, this is something that it's going to be a while before we can have a clinical type of recommendation but at the individual patient level once you kind of know where your limits are for setbacks i think it's important to prevent those in order to maintain forward progress
0: wow well, this is i imagine a very i don't don't know how this is talked about in the in the hyperacusis community but in the Tinnitus patient community, which obviously includes many people with hyperacusis, there's there's always so much talk about protect protection and and what's over when is protection over protection and how do you strike that balance between protecting just enough without going crazy and you know completely isolating yourself and locking yourself in a soundproof room kind of thing. So we see so many debates about this on the tinnitus talk forum and it's and it's really tricky because i can imagine for some people yeah they do require that level of protection or maybe temporarily require it um, in situations that would be totally okay for most other people Um, but then we also see cases of people who you know become so scared of of everyday sounds and so scared of the setbacks uh, that, um, you know, that in itself causes them a lot of, uh, yeah, damage in a way in the sense that they they really can't lead any semblance of a normal life. So it, it's uh, tricky because it varies so much, I think, per individual what's, what's right. And you see people, adv- you know, advising each other as if they know what's right for everybody else. So you get very tense discussions. I don't know if you recognize this.
1: Sure, obviously this is uh, huge in, in our community. And um, one of the things that's been great uh, over the last year or two is getting a lot more evidence-based data to show what is generally happening in larger populations. Uh, we did find in a survey this summer that when, uh, was completed by over 350 people that uh, setback prevention was more important to them than the things associated with uh, just general loud sounds uh, you know, becoming more tolerable. In other words, they would much more prioritize uh, not having a setback over being able to tolerate slightly louder sounds. So the question becomes what exactly is happening with a setback physiologically? This is a new aim and emphasis we have with researchers to get this studied in animal models because in fact we have had what I would say risky advice going to patients who are all lumped together into one large category. And if you as a uh, clinician do not really understand what is happening physiologically, and yet you advise a patient to a certain level of exposure and they have a huge setback, you don't know what that's done to them. And I think most importantly on the research side, what we wanna see happen is we wanna see the evidence gained that helps demonstrate, is there a physiological change that's happening along the auditory pathway, starting with the middle ear, Or is this something that is more perception-based? The evidence that I'm seeing is starting to give the impression that I think there is a physiological change that's happening, even though we don't fully understand what that is. And therefore, like any other injury, uh, re-injury becomes a dominant concern. Um, If you have uh, a joint problem that you consistently re-injure, you will never get the healing. And so I think it, there is a trade-off that has to be found. And I think it's much further beyond the scope of the psychological realm than has been thought. I think it's over-categorized as a psychological concern. Obviously, there are psychological components to the decision. Um, But I think the physiological part is one that we can get a lot more evidence to help patients make better choices while we search for the cure.
0: Well, that certainly would make this whole discussion a lot more objective. Do you think it works the same for tinnitus, by the way? Because um, a lot of those discussions, tense discussions that I mentioned are from people uh, with tinnitus who whose tinnitus gets worse, you know, after being exposed to, to certain sounds and then other people saying, well, no, it's not, it's not because of the sound exposure. It's because of your emotional reaction or, or, or fear that your tinnitus is getting worse, and which could also be the case because we know that stress can trigger tinnitus. So it's very hard to make that distinction. But do you think what you were saying applies to, to tinnitus as well?
1: Again, I think it it definitely applies in some cases. Um, it's hard to say whether it's a high percentage or, or a low percentage. I think there is quite a bit of crossover. Stress itself is a very interesting phenomenon. And even in uh, research papers I've seen presented uh, at ARO, the R- Association of Research for Otolaryngology, I've seen differences in perspective about Stress factors, whether or not they were causative, are uh, a result of the impact. And to me, this is uh, too easily um, automatically assumed to be causative. And my perception is we need more research to understand when the stress, in fact, may be uh, this the additional stress hormone impact is something that occurs because of the event and is not a a factor in causing it. But that is still debatable. I, I certainly don't have the science to try to prove it today, but I'm trying to get researchers to think about ways to put more science into this rather than having the baseline assumptions that's always been there.
0: Yeah, I think that's much needed. I totally agree. So let's talk a bit more about treatment options. So we've covered TRT, and sound therapy. Um, uh, Are there any other viable treatment options at the moment? Some people have mentioned some kind of surgery, which I really don't know what it's about, but are you aware of any kind of surgery for hyperacusis?
1: Sure. I mean, uh, there's a physician in Florida that's really promoting this right now, and it's gaining some momentum taking the nature of what's been done for superior canal dehiscence where there's rounder and or oval window reinforcement procedures to stiffen those to kind of dampen all sounds. He's uh, put some information present that is indicating a lot of positive impact. So uh, that's, I think, good news for those who find benefit there, Uh, but it isn't helping everybody. Uh, I do know of cases that it has not helped at all. And there are some concerns in the deeper research community associated with the model of what he's presupposing it's doing that it could, in fact, do something very different um, on the basis of of what's being learned in the research community. So it's not actually a new procedure. It's just new that the procedure is being done solely on the basis of hyperacusis. Um, we're obviously very interested in keeping a close eye on it, um, but right now I, I don't see enough evidence that it, it could be a purely recommend. I think every patient has to really understand what's going on with the process and the protocol and the risk uh, to see if it, it could be beneficial.
0: Yeah, that sounds like sound advice. Um, I mean, we've seen on the tinnitus talk forum, people flock to certain uh, doc- doctors do, trying a- experimental procedures. And, you know, even if they're legitimate doctors, it's it's still, you know, the evidence isn't there yet. It's experimental. Um, and I I do fear sometimes that people are so desperate that they don't inform themselves properly of the risks. And, you know, they could even... Um, get a lot worse, so I think that's sound advice. So, where can people go to to get sort of reliable information on treatment options? Uh, how they can how can they find a clinician who is experienced with hypercuses for instance?
1: Yeah, so obviously we frequently get asked that question: <laughs> Where can I get some help uh, locally? And um, it is not always easy depending on where one is. Um, you know, the good news is there are more audiologists who do promote a program associated with uh, tinnitus and hyperacusis, and those are obviously pla- places to start. Um, but it does require a little more digging than just making a, a phone call or, or making an appointment at a clinic. Um, One of the things that's been interesting as I've been out to clinical communities is just talking to those who do have a practice where they treat hyperacusis. Well, how many hyperacusis patients do you see a week or a month? Some literally only see a few a year. And uh, there's almost no way around the fact that, you know, for any condition that a clinician is only treating a few times a year, They're going to be less able to really comprehend everything they're, they need to do for the patient. And that's a challenge. I mean, it's, it's kind of a catch 22 situation where, you know, they're not gaining the type of experience that may help them to have a little more expertise. So I think, you know, asking some fundamental questions about You know, how are they trained to treat hyperacuses? Where were they trained at? What have they done to keep up with the latest research? Um, Those are all fundamental questions that's important to ask a clinic if you're looking for help. And um, knowing that, you know, you can get a starting point to know um, whether or not they might have something valuable for you. The other thing that's really big uh, in many different medical communities right now is individualized patient care and really finding out, you know, what they do to take that uh, individualized patient perspective. Because that's another problem with treatment protocols when uh, a clinician has the standard practice of a one size fits all approach and they really try to box everybody into that same little group. That they were trained on, um, I think that uh, sometimes is what leads to uh, advice that isn't helpful.
0: Yeah, that sounds very recognizable, and I've heard this from many people. Um, uh, and I think it applies very much to TRT as well, which is, I think, what's called directive counseling or something. It's very top down. Yes, it doesn't really take the patient perspective into account. And I, I totally agree. We need to get to a more patient-driven model. What would you say to someone with hyperacusis who has already tried many different things? So they've already tried TRT, sound therapy, psychotherapy. What what can they still... Are are there still any options uh, available to such people?
1: There's a number of different things that... uh for the more rare of a disorder you have, the more you have to kind of look at the, the entire picture of your health and see what might be impacting. Uh, we know there's been um, more research in the uh, tinnitus community on the impacts of uh, things like um, what uh, happens associated with certain categories of food, for example, You know, a popular one that's debated is caffeine, right, the the impact of that. I think that everybody that suffers from something that's poorly understood, one of the things every single patient can take control of themselves is to look at uh, their nutritional framework and look to optimize it. We're starting to learn that there are several different reasons to think there may be inflammatory responses associated with some types of hyperacuses. And therefore, uh, you know, whole health approaches associated with anti-inflammatory concepts uh, might be beneficial to some people. And so while that's less defined and it's not the same as a, a curative treatment approach for many people, Uh, It is something that's in every patient's control.
0: Okay. So there are still things people can do to explore um, either by themselves or, or with a doctor, kind of maybe through a process of elimination, what works and what doesn't work. Maybe lifestyle changes that may make it more tolerable. Is that what you're referring to?
1: Yeah, and these types of uh, explorations, it's it's not so much as curing it as, co- you know, maintaining control right. and trying to mitigate uh, the situation from worsening. That's where, you know, oftentimes we learn the science many years after we see an effect. And so while there is, you know, if you go to the research associated with uh, the impact of various um, environmental factors, for example. Uh, again, at ARO this year, we had a whole segment on um, what is happening in the space to help the aging population um, and their disease impact. There was a whole segment of that on Um, the impact to uh, various diseases for inflammatory issues. And so, um, we don't know yet how that might play a role in conditions like hyperacusis or tinnitus, but it is at least a space that we can see that individuals can make a choice. And there are individual cases where people do find a significant impacting factor. But it's not, you know, uh, at a point where we can have specific recommendations yet.
0: Right. So people would have to go at it with some trial and error and maybe try one lifestyle change for a few weeks, see if that makes a difference. If it doesn't, then try something else. Sure. Right. So apart from treatment options, I think I already briefly mentioned sort of the need for people to have access to reliable information. There's a lot of information online, um, you know, but this is really an avenue that's important for many people, Um, you know, finding whether it's peer-to-peer support online, like we offer at the Tinnitus Talk support forum, or just, you know, informational resources. um, It's for many people, it's probably even their primary source of help, but, you know, it's hard to know what's, what's reliable and what's not. Can you give any advice on, on what resources online are reliable and accurate or not?
1: There's two types of resources that uh, people can utilize, uh, and it really depends on the stage they're at. For example, you have the, you know, person first investigating uh, a new condition And they're, you know, going to uh, clinical program sites such as at the University of California at San Francisco, where they have a hyperacusis patient management program described online. Those clinically oriented places can give a good start. Um, But as we were just discussing, you know, one of the things that's important to remember when you go to the mainstream type of sites, they're they're not going to be comprehending recent research. And at a minimum, there's a five to ten year gap between what's being learned in research compared to what's in the clinical community. And that's true for many conditions, uh, not just these auditory conditions. That's something we're constantly trying to work on to help bridge that gap, Um, but what many quickly learned that if they want to know what's going on in the research community, you can use a tool like Google Scholar. You can directly see what's being published. And we do try to bring that forward on our site and in our Facebook channel uh, very regularly, what's being learned new uh, in the research community. And I think that can be really helpful to patients who've already done a lot on their own and they really wanna know what's being uncovered that might be helpful. The challenging part of following research is that sometimes you don't directly know the implications of what that means back to you as a patient or at the clinical level. And so that is where you know communities can be helpful for attempting to interpret that. But again, we do see that as one of our key aims to be making that connection in all the directions needed so that what we know in the research can turn around faster to be helpful to patients.
0: Right, so maybe this is a good moment for you to plug your your website. Uh, Where can people go to to find you?
1: Sure, we're at hyperacusisresearch.org, and that is um, where we do try to bring the latest news there. Uh, We have a daily updated Facebook posting uh, for hyperacusis research as well. That you can follow regularly, as well as Twitter, and we uh, try to bring all of those latest tidbits uh, there, which does automatically have a, you know an initial discussion that happens, uh, as well as we have larger summaries associated with the research conferences we attend every year and try to summarize that into uh, ways that are meaningful to the patient.
0: Great, so. Let's move deeper into research and spend the last uh, part of this discussion uh, talking about research developments. We got a lot of questions from listeners uh, asking your opinion on specific research that's going on, but maybe a good place to start is just to ask you what current avenues of research or specific studies even are you most excited about?
1: Sure, well, there's a number of avenues that are very exciting. Um, One is the hyperacusis hybrid device clinical trial at the University of South Florida. This was a project that came about uh, as a result of many years of efforts on the part of numerous individuals. Uh, Dr. Craig Formby from the University of Alabama originally, Dr. Edens, who's at the University of South Florida leading the project, we had uh, connected through a number of different avenues. And specifically, Dr. Formby heard the patient stories of those who could not find an avenue of improvement. And he brought this idea forward, which we quickly supported, that uh, let's develop a device that could help patients who need some type of way to attenuate loud sounds as they try to uh, come over that threshold of being in a quiet environment out into the louder world. And so this device specifically has a sound attenuating mechanism to uh, screen out all sounds up to the patient's uh, comfort level and also has a built-in white noise generator. So I was excited to uh, help initially support that project to help it over the threshold of getting funded in the um, research uh, money required uh, for a clinical trial. And then I've been able to uh, examine the process and protocol being used in the clinical setup at the the lab there in the University of South Florida and have seen that it is a, a super rigorous program and project that they've got set up. Uh, patients are enrolled, it has started, and uh, we're excited to see that uh, kicked off the ground.
0: Why are you excited about it? So what, what do you think it could really bring uh, to patients?
1: Well, number one, uh, you know, of course, the, the first key aim is to see improvements in the patients uh, that are participate in the trial. Their hyperacusis does improve. Uh, but number two, it establishes a, a new avenue for helping patients who have this dilemma of what you brought up earlier about protection levels. Today, you pretty much have an on-off switch in control of your hands, right? You put in an earplug or you don't. You wear an earmuff or you don't. Uh, This device will allow you to hear normal sounds, say up to the level that you determine of 65 decibels. And therefore, you're not having an earplug in for those lower level sounds, you're hearing that sound normally. Then at that point, it's gonna clamp the sounds to mitigate them getting louder to your ear than 65 decibels. So it's truly providing a transitional avenue, technically, in a way that has not been feasible yet. So it's an incredible way to work around this problem of setbacks. Um, If the project is successful and proves to have that kind of value, this will be a great tool to try to make continued progress and not have setbacks along the way because previously you had to make that choice. Oh, I have an earplug or I don't. This way you have the benefit of an earplug all the time you need it because the device is there, but you don't have to get all sounds muffled uh, that are below your comfort levels, you hear them normally. So, it's an incredible breakthrough from that sense because, you know, again, if successful, this will be the first time that patients are no longer faced with this dilemma themselves, but have the technology help them.
0: Great. Um, yeah, it it sounds like something that would give the patient also a more of a sense of control. So, coming back to that notion of sort of patient centered treatment. But what about. Uh, the work going on around hearing regeneration, is that something you're following? And do you think it could provide a plausible treatment avenue maybe for pain hyperacusis?
1: Sure, yes. This is uh, also obviously in the long-term strategy of everything, this is the, the center of the future. Um, we happen to have uh, forged our partnership with the Hearing Health Foundation. Um, the year before they kicked off the Hearing Restoration Project in New York City. So I was able to attend that and to see that firsthand, uh, the program rolled out. And ever since then, obviously, uh, we've followed this work very, very closely uh, in the many different dimensions that it covers, right, from sensory hair cell regeneration to notch signaling pathways to many genetic reprogramming techniques that are all go- you know, part of what it's going to take to have a successful hearing restoration. Most recently, uh, Charlie Lieberman from uh, Mass Eye and Ear associated with Harvard, spoke at our annual benefit dinner where he described the many new developments that companies like uh, the company he helped form, Decibel Therapeutics, are finding in their paths of progress. And so um, this I- is critical to the future of Many different auditory conditions. Now, we don't yet have the evidence to say where exactly will be the intercepting point associated with their work and hyperacuses, and even more specifically, hyperacuses with pain. Um, We do know that um, there are possible links and connections. Uh, but there's quite a bit of evidence needed, you know, to prove those out. Um, So to use a bad pun, we do have the ear of these researchers um, so that when they're investigating, the paths they're investigating, they can keep in mind hyperacuses as a component of where that research may lead. And oftentimes I find that by having a condition in mind that can alter projects and programs today that can therefore make that connection in the future that's needed to know exactly how it will apply and when it can offer help.
0: Mm, Yeah, that that brings up also an interesting question that one of our listeners asked. Um, You know, it's kind of related to this whole, you know, interrelation of all these various auditory conditions. Uh, And the question was, if there was a cure for tinnitus, do you think it would cure hyperacusis as well?
1: I think there's a much better chance it would cure loudness hyperacusis than pain hyperacusis. Right. Um, But it's it's definitely hard to say uh, because of how much more we need to learn about uh, the auditory pathways. I think if you take, for example, the central gain model, which may play a fairly evenly strong role in both tinnitus and loudness hyperacusis. If you're able to impact that mechanism positively, likely people with both conditions would get benefit. But I'm, I'm not so sure that in that case there would be benefit for those with pain.
0: Right. So are, is there any other interesting research that you'd like to make people aware of?
1: Sure, well, um, we're obviously following the work associated with the middle ear conditions that um, have explored how various uh, components within the middle ear may be playing a role, um, specifically in pain hyperacusis. What was first uh, coined uh, actually back in the the 1980s, uh, Tonic tensor Timpani Syndrome, is one of those that we followed. Uh, Damien Ponsat in France was a a key researcher that helped me to be connected to this work, and he's done some great summary of this uh, functional basis of what this uh, tensor tympani is doing. These, you know, more recently, Miriam Westcott's work is one that has helped to dissect the details of the symptoms patients experience that she feels confident is uh, interrelated to mechanisms that probably do play into uh, pain hyperacusis. So that's definitely one that we're following closely. I have a a number of key connections uh, to the the folks involved here. And um, I I do believe this is gonna have a really strong impact to a subset of the population.
0: Yeah, that's that's very exciting, um, and I'm I'm learning a lot of new things here as well. Because um, since I don't have hyperacusis myself, I've been following the tinnitus research more closely. I, I want to start wrapping up, and I have a, a final question for you. But um, before I ask it, just want to check with you whether there's anything at all that um, you still want to cover or, or comment on.
1: So we do have exciting news on a new uh, avenue of research coming together at the next Tinnitus Research Initiative, uh, which is gonna be a conference in Vancouver in 2020. And it's going to be a topic on hyperacusis and associated symptoms. So this is going to specifically dive into some of Miriam's work. She will be a part of it, Miriam Westcott, as well as a number of other key researchers Um, who are coming together to look at the mechanisms of hyperacuses associated with uh, multiskeletal disorders of the head-neck complex, including the middle ear, the trigeminal nerve, and inflammatory responses. So we will be able to participate in that. Uh, It's significant for two reasons. First is it's the first time at a forum of this level that these topics are going to be Uh, getting this kind of attention um, associated especially with these inflammatory and middle ear uh, components. So we're excited to get that out into the research and clinical world. It's secondly also exciting because TRI does not often cover hyperacusis. And this will be a really important avenue where, you know, as many uh, as 400 participants will get to hear about some of the details behind what's going on in the front for hyperacusis And so we're really excited about that.
0: Yeah, well, I'm excited about uh, attending that symposium because I plan to be at the TRI conference in Vancouver, uh, hopefully with a few other Tinnitus Hub volunteers and uh It'll be great to meet you there in person as well, because we haven't met in person.
1: Yes. Great.
0: (laughs) So, Brian, um, final question. What what can people, regular people with hyperacusis who want to see the research move forward and who want to uh, help researchers get to that cure, what can they do to facilitate that?
1: Now, many people ask me, well, how long will it take to find a cure? And um, there's obviously no easy way to answer that. But one thing that we do know as a general rule of thumb in the medical research community is the more researchers tackling a problem, the faster progress will be made uh, to find a cure. And as we know, researchers need funding, and funding comes in multiple ways. Uh, A core way is large institutional grants, uh, typically from large governmental sources, uh, but also nonprofit funding. One of the drivers to both of those arenas is media attention. And the first thing I always point individuals to, if you have an avenue to where you can get media attention on the problem of hyperacuses, whether it's your specific case or someone you know with hyperacuses, you can get it in print, you can get it on TV. Uh, That is critically important because um, people don't support something they've never heard of very easily, right? And um, we do live in, you know, a very media savvy age. Uh, There are lots of avenues that offers uh, a lot of different ways to get the word out to help more people in the public understand, hey, this is a phenomenon, this is a condition that needs your support. In the US, I've specifically been told by our government agencies that they look critically to patient advocate organizations to determine their priorities. They literally said, hey, if there's a condition that has no patient advocacy group, it's highly unlikely we would fund anything for that problem. Hmm. And so that's where groups like Hyperacusis Research become important because we can be the voice to aggregate your voices together to help that government agency see that funding is needed. Uh, I am excited that here in the US, we were able to influence our core agencies at the National Institutes of Health to include hyperacuses as one of three core aims for what originally was only focused on hearing loss and then eventually we focus on hearing loss and tinnitus. And now hyperacuses is that third bullet to their aim. And so that took a lot of work, that took a lot of influence, that took a lot of years. And that helps those grants that get to those people's tables to be more strongly considered if they're solely for hyperacuses. And so that is key. We use the research dollars uh, that we raise money for to fund what we call seed grants, our emerging research grant program in the partnership with Hearing Health. While there are smaller grants, typically it's the type of grant needed for a researcher or investigator to get what's called a preliminary data to support that larger grant application. And we've seen that multiply here in the U.S. from just three or four years ago the most that was ever happening in a year for funding was about a million dollars a year. Now we're seeing three to four more million dollars a year in research grants from the government for hyperacuses. That's still not large but it's at least growing and that's the way we look to use the money that we raise is to literally turn it around and try to multiply it by a hundred uh, with these larger sources of funding.
0: Well, that's very impressive and um, you know this whole, Political lobbying avenue and the media avenue—it's things we've started recently looking into at Tinnitus Hub, and um yeah, it's it's really a tangled web to understand how the whole funding aspect works. So if we've we've started looking into that, and then the media aspect—it's um I would say both tinnitus and hyperacusis are probably difficult conditions to get media attention for. To take the example of tinnitus, people always say, we need an ambassador, right? We need a celebrity who has tinnitus and speaks about it publicly. Well, we know many celebrities do have tinnitus, but very, very few of them have spoken about it publicly and none have really taken on a real ambassador role, at least not consistently. So I wonder why that is, Uh, and it it might be the same for hyperacusis, that it's somehow not A condition people like to talk about publicly or it's not considered sort of sexy enough? I don't know. Do you have a view on that?
1: Well, yeah. Actually, we've studied this quite uh, in depth um, because it's, you know, even harder to find uh, anyone of name recognition who has hyperacusis. And um, yes, I think, you know, the first challenge associated with these conditions is they're invisible. And anytime you're up before the public talking about something unseen, there's a degree that you're putting yourself at risk to to people thinking this is all in your head. And so I think, you know, as I've looked at other parallel conditions, what I've seen is it's most hard to get that media attention for something that can't be seen. Um, And therefore, you know, we have to find ways to make it more clear to people what that impact is. Um, when we did our work associated with, you know, what uh, some have seen from our site, uh, a, a teen girl, Cindy, who had significant hyperacusis, impact her life, and we started the journey there where her family really wanted to, to use her condition as a platform to help people understand what this can mean. Um, we saw that there was a lot of compassion once we started getting the story out uh, of a young person's life that was dramatically altered. They just needed to see how that altered life looked. And, you know, in that case, that did receive, you know, a lot of uh, international media attention, eventually made it to People magazine and uh, to TV as well in a number of places. So, it's it's definitely difficult. You have to be very deliberate. Uh, you have to really go after the communication channels in every avenue. But it's it's well well worth it. And that's where if you know hundreds and thousands of us are doing that ourselves, eventually some of our stories will be heard.
0: Right. Uh, on that note. I think we should wrap up. Brian, thank you so much for your time, but more importantly also for the very important work you're doing that benefits people with hyperacusis around the world.
1: Yes, well, uh, thank you for hosting me today.